In the name of the Father, and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Years ago now, when I was uh, living in Connecticut, I had the privilege uh, to get to know a very wise old rabbi uh, who was still very involved in the community there. Uh, He would periodically come up to our seminary and give a lecture or hear a lecture. Um, He was a man who had suffered intensely in his life. Actually, most of his family had died in the Holocaust. And yet somehow this man had chosen to respond to that tragedy in his life by actually becoming more compassionate, uh, not resentful or bitter as you might have thought, I learned a lot of things from him, but at the very top of that list uh, was something that he said to us who were much younger than him, something that he said over and over again. He said, the only unforgivable sin from a Jewish perspective is the sin of despair. To believe that any situation is hopeless to look at a set of circumstances and come to the conclusion that no good could be drawn from it, he said, to the Jewish person, this is the absolute affront. Well, it has been now some 40 years since he shared that truth with me. I have never forgotten it, and I am more convinced than ever of the truth of it. In the final analysis, there is only one unforgivable sin, and that is the sin of despair. I mean, just think about it. From a human perspective, despair is absolutely presumptuous. It is saying something about reality. It is saying something about the future that we finite creatures simply don't have a right to say, given the limits of our knowledge. You remember the Apostle Paul in that wonderful, wonderful sonnet on love to the Corinthians, writes, we know in part, we prophesy in part, we see as in a mirror dimly. Therefore, who are we to ever say of any moment and in any situation, there is nothing good that could come from this. We simply don't know enough. From a human perspective, despair is presumptuous. Just think of the things. I think of the things that have happened in recent history, in my adult years, that I was completely surprised by. Who among us in the late 80s or 90s would have predicted that the great freedom movements that swept across Eastern Europe would lead to the breakup of the Soviet bloc? Is there anyone in this room who would have dreamed that Eastern and Western Germans would be dancing together on the Berlin Wall. Who, 15 years ago, if you were told that General Motors would declare bankruptcy and take a bailout from the feds, would have put any money down on that? During that same period of time, if someone had said to you that the next president that we elected for two terms would be an African-American, really, Would you have believed it? 35 years ago, if somebody would have said to you about a congregation that had about 60 people worshiping, the average age was over 70, 
had no children in it, if they would have told you that there would be a room full of people here celebrating a wonderful group of graduates and dozens of people who had been out working in the community renovating a house, really, would you have believed it? Just think of the things that have happened only in recent history that you did not anticipate. The number of times we have been surprised. And then use that humility to recognize that simply given the kind of creatures that we are, despair is presumptuous. I used to have a friend uh, from down south whose uncle would pontificate about just about anything. But then he would always add with a proviso of humility, he would say, but you got to remember that I had Lee and six points at, App at Appomattox. So I'm not infallible. All of us have somebody in six points. And the game turns out differently. From a human standpoint, despair is presumptuous. But I have come to a second conclusion as well. And this, I think, is actually closer to the thinking of my rabbinical friend. And that is that from a spiritual standpoint, despair is downright heretical. It says something, of course, not only about life and the future, it says something about the Holy One, about this one who had the power to bring everything that is out of nothing. It says something about this incredible goodness as well as life and the future. It is downright heretical to say in any given situation, there is nothing that this kind of ingenious mercy can do. Even God is stymied in this case. It is admittedly humbling to me that the one who first uh, shared that spiritual insight with me is a person who did not believe in the whole canon of the scriptures that I have available to me. This rabbi, all of his insight and all of his compassion, did not believe that what Jesus has done had any significance for him as a Messiah. And yet, in just reading the Old Testament, he had come to realize that despair in any given situation is an affront to this ingenious mercy that walks the pages of the Old Testament that Lynn just spent an hour reading to us. <laughs> For example, it seems to me that in our lesson this morning, Joseph must have been strengthened on his way to Egypt because his father, Jacob, had shared with him something about this God who was everywhere, and this kind of ingenious mercy that would not let him go. And that must have given him the courage to keep on keeping on, even in the midst of extremely difficult um, circumstances. There is enough insight just in the Joseph sagas to give basis to the belief that despair is heretical in the face of the kind of God who was at work there. There is so much just in the Joseph stories that depicts our human sinfulness. It appears that Jacob, Joseph's father, really had not learned anything from the pain in his own life, his dysfunctional family, where you remember his parents had shown real favoritism between him and his brother Esau. He knew the pain that that had caused in his own life. 
And yet when it came time to be a parent, he did the very same thing to his son, Joseph. And of course, um, the outcome was predictable. You can see why H.G. Wells once said in great pessimism, the only thing that we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. And of course, the response was that Joseph became a spoiled, insufferable brat, grandiose in his own image of himself and arrogant in the way he dealt with virtually everyone. And his brothers, of course, responded understandably in anger. They beat him violently. They sold him into slavery. Uh, there was nothing noble. There was nothing admirable about it. And yet, if you read these incredible stories, it is amazing what ingenious mercy is able to do with human badness. Because Joseph was put in a context where he could become much more responsible than had he stayed under the pampering of his father. Qualities of character emerged in him while he was in Egypt that never would have had he stayed at home. Had he, been in the situation, had he not been put in the situation you remember with Lady Potiphar, he would never have come to the attention of Pharaoh. Had he not come to the attention of Pharaoh, he would never have been put in a position where he could save all the grain that he did. And had he not done that, not only would the empire of Egypt, but all of the descendants of Abraham would never have survived all of which points to the powerful line towards the end of the saga, where you remember Jesus encounters his brothers again. And they are, each one, looking back with an incredible weight of guilt at what they have done, and rightfully so. But Joseph, filled with the same kind of compassion as my rabbi friend, Joseph dares to say to them, don't be too hard on yourself. You intended this for evil. God used it for good. If God is able to take the worst that we can do and somehow work with it so that it produces good, if something like the ancient process of alchemy is an analogy to the way God works in history, you know, taking one substance and transforming it into something else, don't you see why despair is not only presumptuous from a human point of view, but downright heretical from a spiritual one? Who are we to say what God can yet do with what we have done or failed to do? I remember years ago, I was down at the Presbyterian Conference Center in Montreat, a beautiful spot in North Carolina. And I remember hearing a person talk about one of his mentors who apparently had lived in that Smoky Mountain area. And the mentor said that one day he was snapped out of a deep depression when he was sitting on his porch looking at these beautiful, beautiful flowers, which in a more vigorous time of his life he had planted and cultivated, and sitting there with that heaviness that comes when you are really depressed, that immobility, that frozenness, the feeling that nothing can change. And as he is sitting there, staring vacantly at this row of flowers, it suddenly occurred to him, roses grow out of horse manure. <laughs> and that gave him hope. 
roses grow out of horse manure. Now, that is not a very elegant image. Some of you will think it is not worthy of the pulpit. But I have to tell you, it could be worse. I remember when Bess Truman uh, passed away, Time Magazine did a little memoir of her. And uh, one of the little episodes that it recounts is a time when her daughter Margaret uh, came into her. This was still while Harry was uh, the president. And uh, she said to him, can't you get father to stop saying horse manure? It's simply not worthy of his office. God knows what she would say today. Um, and, and, and Bess responded, honey, if you knew what he was saying before I got him to say horse manure, you would be grateful. <laughs> so the image is not elegant, could be worse, but it is really to the point. If we live in a creation in which the prettiest and the most fragrant of flowers can be grown out of the smelliest and the, the most disagreeable of all substances, who are we to say what God can do with those parts of our lives and our world that are so broken and so less than perfect? Years ago, we had a young couple in our congregation, many years ago, named Ron and Karen Pauli. They became members, they were married uh, here in this sanctuary. And so everyone was very excited uh, about a year and a half later to find out that they were pregnant. Even more so a couple of months later to discover that it was twins. One afternoon I was sitting in my office, which was at the time right where Diane's office is now, and I received a call to come quickly because Ron said, one of the twins is going to live, and one of them is going to die. So I went immediately over to Beaumont, and in one of those little rooms, we baptized little Ryan Pauli with some water in a styrofoam cup and any nurses or aides that we could drag into the room. A couple of days later, we did a little memorial for Ryan right here where the communion table is. And then we went up to 12 in Woodward, and we... Uh, we buried him in that place in the cemetery that is set aside for those purposes. Well, it took a little while for everyone to catch their breath, but really not long afterwards, Ron and Karen came to me and they said, I, we want to do something in Ryan's honor, something that maybe is for children. Well, we were at the stage in our redevelopment where we didn't have a lot going for children and nothing for youth at all. So I said to them, why don't, you, you know, why don't you put aside a fund? And that's exactly what they did. They set up a matching fund so that the amount would be double, um, set aside for something having to do with children and youth. And to this day, every Christmas, we receive a letter in the mail from Ron and Karen Pauli and one from each of their parents with a check for the Ryan Pauli Fund. But it was only because we had that money in the bank, that I went to the Lutheran and Methodist minister in town and said, you know, we should develop a community youth ministry. And Matt Stoll is the fourth community youth minister that we have had in that role, thanks to little Ryan Pauli. Thanks to all of that, hundreds of senior highs have been on mission trips. And this summer, a whole group are heading off again not to mention retreats and worship services and God knows how many f 
stupid fundraisers, including <laughs> flowers. And thank you all for buying all those. Did God intend little Ryan to die? Of course not. I take as my theological North Star Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, it is not the will of the Heavenly Father that any of his children should suffer. But did God use that sad tragedy for good? Absolutely. Because nothing is impossible with this kind of ingenious alchemist God. Every Sunday we gather here and we watch the sun streaming through what is the greatest symbol of our alchemist God, a cross. And every Sunday we gather at this temple, we remember a deed even worse than what Joseph's brothers did to him, worse than anything human beings have ever done. The cross represents the absolute manure dimension of our human condition. We took the very Son of God and we did the absolute worst to the very best of persons. Who would have dared to say on that first Friday that centuries later, people like you and me would gather to celebrate something as horrible as the crucifixion of an innocent man? Who could ever have fathomed that God would take the worst thing that we ever did and transform it into the greatest symbol of his love, into something that saves us rather than drives us to everlasting despair? Who would have thought that this is the way our God works? But that is precisely what Good Friday and Easter is all about. You talk about despair being heretical. If God loves us enough to do that for us, how could we ever set limits on the future? How could we ever say this situation or that person is beyond hope? So my friends, we gather this morning fully conscious of the worst that we have it in us to do as individuals, as a church, as a nation, this is not some Pollyannish faith, but also cognizant of all the best that this ingenious mercy can do with that. Understand what God is saying. There is always hope, not because of your goodness or mine, but because of the mercy that is bigger than anything you and I have ever done or failed to do. My rabbi friend was absolutely right. There is only one sin that rises to the realm of the absolute. And what is that? It is the sin of despair. Who are we to say what God can do with our future if this is what God has done with our past? Amen.